Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I'd like to invite you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles on this Resurrection Sunday to two places in your Bible. The first is Leviticus chapter 16, and the other is in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10. So just mark those two places, and we're going to find our way to each of them in just a moment, because I am here to announce to you that you have made it all the way through Leviticus. Come on. Yes. I am so proud of you. It's not even funny. Oh my goodness. Today we do chapter 16 and you may ask, well, why is 16 the very last chapter? Because I'm telling you, we saved 16 for the very last to land on Easter Sunday because nothing says Easter like Leviticus 16. And we're about to find out why in just a moment, but I got to tell you, for the last 15 weeks, you have done well. You have hung in there, and we have learned something about this ancient text that I absolutely believe in my heart was written for 2019. This seemingly arcane, primitive, ancient text that has nothing to do with contemporary life, actually just beneath the surface, has had something to do with everything in 2019. As we have looked at how God in the very beginning attempted to bring order and a sense of, uh, a sense of order and, and beauty out of this chaos that ex-slaves experienced in Egypt. And having just set them free, he calls them to a way of life that is intended to help keep them free. And we're going to see what that means for us in just a moment. But before we do, Exodus or Leviticus 16, and, and we'll get there in just a moment. First, let's pray. Let's bow together. And God, we recognize in this moment, even as we approach your holy scriptures, that there, uh, there really is a truth we have to admit here, that nothing in that book matters at all until we yield ourselves to the possibility of being transformed by it. Lord, we recognize that there are words on the page that seem so ancient that they have nothing to do with where we are, and yet you have taught us that it's not what the text says, it's what the text is doing in the hearts and minds of those who hear what it says. So do something this day in 2019 that so transforms the way we think and feel and believe and behave in this world that we truly are transformed by a love that can transform the world we pray these things in the name of christ the lord of life amen so about a year ago 
I did something that was so embarrassing. I almost wanted to bury my head every time I drove into and out of my neighborhood. For about three or four weeks, the King family missed trash pickup. I'm waiting for you to catch up on that one. So three or four weeks in a row, on Monday morning when the trash is supposed to go out to the curb for a number of very reasonable uh, reasons, we forgot trash pickup. It, it may have been that one day we were out of town. Another day, another week, it, it could have been that we were in town, but maybe it was a holiday weekend, and so they were going to come on Tuesday. But by Tuesday, Tuesday's a different rhythm, and we forgot altogether. And then the third week, and then the fourth week, and I'm just telling you that it was a mess. I mean, it got so bad because it's not just the problem that we forgot trash pickup, but in between the weeks that we did not take our trash down to the street, we didn't stop producing trash. I mean, we, kept, we Americans can produce a lot of trash, a lot of garbage. And over the course of those three weeks or so, well, gosh, there were leftover casseroles, you know, just trash, refuse. In fact, I think our family came to visit, and, and that family has like little babies, so there may have been a few diapers in the trash, cooking in the sun. And as we moved further, one week after the next, I'm telling you that there was a point at which in our little bin area there, you couldn't even see the trash cans. It was like, you know, bags hanging out here, stacked up, pyramided up around it. And, and so that next Monday, I was determined that, that whatever it took, if I had to stay up all night on a vigil, on our garbage run vigil, I was not going to miss trash pickup. So the next morning came, and I kept watching and waiting and listening. And when it was getting near, well, see, before that, I took it out the night before, down to the street. I put on my hazmat outfit, masked up, you know, like on. And so we took, I took the stuff down to the street, and there it was like a mountain of just absolute garbage uh, right next to my driveway. If you pulled in to the neighborhood, you would smell it around the corner. Let me just put it there. It was bad. The next morning got here, I heard the truck come. As the truck came, I went down to the street because I just felt sorry for the guy. I wanted to help him. And so helping him throw some stuff in to, to find the trash cans in the first place. And, and by the end, so, you know, I'm like, I'm hugging him, you know. And he's like, dude, this is weird. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I so thank you. I just, I love you. And as, they, as the garbage uh, collectors drove away, I, I think there may have been like a small tear in the corner of my eye. I'm like, finally, I'm clean. And I am convinced, because I know it from experience, it's possible for the human heart to get that way. It just is. For a number of any number of, of reasons that seem reasonable at the time, there, there can be this, well, you miss trash pickup, and the thing happens, and the mistake is made, and then the thing is said that you didn't want to say about the thing that was done, and, and instead of cleaning it up, you just kind of let it live there in the heart and the mind, and then the problem is you don't stop making mistakes, so you just pile it on, and, and every act or word or attitude that is not fitting of who you are as a follower of Jesus. It just piles up around the heart. 
What do you do when trash backs up in the soul? That is what Leviticus 16 is all about. Because in Leviticus 16, here we have this entire manual that's been designed in order to show these people a way of life. God says, I've rescued you from your enslavement. And if you follow these peculiar practices, I mean, do these things and not those things. Um, practice these disciplines and, and, and rituals and exercises and live by this kind of code of ethics in your life and you will live. But at the same time, even while God issues a kind of way of life to bring order out of their chaos, God also instills in the very manual <laughs> a fail-safe plan. Because God knew that even as God gives the instructions for a, lot, a way of life that will lead to life, God knew that they would absolutely blow it. And if you blow it, when you get to the moment when you have failed and you have fallen and you have broken co covenant with God and you have not lived up to, to the, the standard that God has for you, this particular God says, there is a way. To be made clean again. So the best way to start this, I want to invite you to the end of the chapter. Chapter 16, I want you to make your way to the very end of the chapter. And by the end, we're going to end up at an empty tomb. But before we do, Leviticus 16, verse 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day of atonement, or on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you, to take out the trash. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. And then move down to verse 34, the very last verse. Of the chapter. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. The central word I want us to fix our attention on in this, this 16th chapter of Leviticus is the word atonement. Atonement in Leviticus is actually better understood as two words. One is yom, which means day, and the other is kippur, which means to cover. It's a day of atonement, yom kippur, or as we would say in East Tennessee, yom kippur. Yom kippur is literally a day of covering. It is the one day in the year when all of the junk of the whole year Every sin, every mistake, every wound, and every act of wounding could be covered. And you could be restored. Think for just a moment with me about the absurdity of that claim. That here for the first time in human history, a God is being introduced. Remember, we know it's an old book. 
We know it's got some really old things you got to put in context. But for the first time in human history, a giant leap forward because we're being introduced to a God for the first time who says, when you disappoint me, I am not finished with you. You can be made well again. That's why the the best definition that I have heard for the word atonement is to basically take the word and just kind of stretch it apart at one moment. To be atoned with God is to be restored to a state of at one moment with God because you were born at one with God. But you know as well as I do when you stop taking out the trash, there is this wedge that begins to separate you and the one who was at one with you in the beginning. This wedge of separation and, and it, it stinks. But to be atoned is to be put back in a state of at one shalom with your soul and with the maker of that soul. So in Leviticus 16, there is emerging this idea that when you break life, you can still be put back together with God. But that means we're going to need some help. The ancients would need somebody to stand up for them to represent them to God the Holy One. That's where the high priest comes in. They would need someone who could stand in the place of all the people and make some kind of intercession for them on behalf of their sin. So we pick up the story back at Leviticus 16, verse 3. Listen to the entrance of the high priest. This is how Aaron, the high priest, is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Let's stop right there for just a moment. We're talking about learning to take out the trash. We're talking about learning to come to a place of at-one-ment with the God who has somehow been, uh, well, you've been separated from him because of choices made, right? And this guy, the first thing we hear about him is his outfit. Now, weeks ago, we we studied in in great detail uh, the work and the identity of these priests, especially the high priest. Uh, and, and we learned all kinds of things about this particular ritual on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was an intense, complex ritual that required a lot of preparation on the part of this one priest. On Yom Kippur, only the high priest would enter the entire tent. In fact, no one else was allowed in the tent. Everyone was outside the tent. It was just he and God. In fact, he had to be so cleansed himself, if he's going to represent the rest of a broken and sinful world, he had to somehow deal with his own problems, so a sacrifice had to first be made on his behalf. He had to sacrifice a bull and a goat for he and his entire family, so that he's even qualified to step into that sacred space. On that day, there are many traditions that even emerged after the scripture was written and after this practice was in place for a long time. They were so concerned to make sure that this guy didn't have some kind of, uh, well, accidental blemish on his record 
that there was even a guy who was assigned to make sure that he didn't fall asleep the night before Yom Kippur. There was a priest literally assigned to the high priest so that when the night comes before Yom Kippur, this guy's only job is to keep the guy awake so that in his sleep, he doesn't accidentally sin in his dreams. I hope you have a friend like that in the world. But do you remember weeks ago when I said that in Leviticus there's this fantastic word. It means accidental sin. It's bishgaga. Remember that great word, bishgaga, when you inadvertently sin? There was a dude assigned to the high priest to make sure that in the middle of the night, while he's asleep, he didn't accidentally bishgaga so that when he woke up, he could be pure and clean and fresh and ready to do the work of at-one-ment with God. Well, we could go about 17 layers deep in this, uh, this study of the high priest, but there's only one area I want us to focus on right now, his clothes. Now, weeks ago, we studied about all that he wore, about his robes and his tunic and his breastplate and his, his turban and every part of that dazzling outfit. I mean, bedazzled with jewels that had symbols that spoke something, gold and uh, different precious uh, jewels and, and stones all adorned all over the man's uh, outfit. But what I want to point out here is that on the Day of Atonement, something different happens. Now, this preparation for Day of Atonement was so intense, and he was such a spectacle, a spectacle to observe that in the second century, there was a scholar, a, a Greek scholar, historian uh, named Aristeus. And the letter of Aristeus is a document from the second century B.C. where this non-Jew, this person who is not a Jew, is observing the high priest in all of his garb, in all of his action. And it was such a spectacular event that these are the words that he spoke to describe that moment. I just want you to, I want you to feel the level of intensity for preparation of becoming at one with God. Everything is carried out, says Aristeus, with reverence and, and, and in a way worthy of a great God. This is a non-Jew watching the high priest of the Jews in action. We were greatly astonished when we saw Eleazar, the high priest, engaged in the ministry at the mode of his dress and the majesty of his appearance which was revealed in the robe which he wore and the precious stones upon his person. There, there were golden bells upon the garment which reached down to his feet, giving forth a peculiar kind of melody. And on both sides of them there were pomegranates with variegated flowers of wonderful hue. He was girded with a girdle of conspicuous beauty, woven in the most beautiful colors on his breast, he wore the oracle of God, as it was called. He wore the oracle of God, as it was called, on which 12 stones of different kinds were inset and fastened together with gold, containing the names of the leaders of all the 12 tribes according to their original order, each one flashing forth in an indescribable way its own particular color. On his head he wore a tiara, as it was called, 
uh, upon the middle of it in his forehead an intimidable turban, a royal diadem full of glory with the name of God inscribed in sacred letters in a plate of pure gold. Having been judged worthy to wear the emblems of the ministry, their appearance created such an awe and such a confusion of mind as to make one feel that one had come into the presence of a man who belonged to another world. I am convinced that anyone who takes part in this spectacle, which I have described, will be filled with astonishment and indescribable wonder and be profoundly affected in his mind at the thought of the sanctity which is attached to every detail of this service. Now, that was written by an observer in the second century, not even a part of the faith, standing back and saying, now that is something to watch the spectacle. And if we take anything away, we can take away this, that the high priest knew how to dress. He knew his threads, his duds, and he looked sharp, but not on Yom Kippur. Leviticus 16 says, on this day, this one day, You wear a linen undergarment. You wear a linen robe, a linen sash, a linen turban. Why? Because when you go to the work of becoming at one with this God, you strip away every element of persona. You strip away ego. You strip away all the projections that you wish to to show the world. There is no impressing this God. You strip off every element of decoration that somehow is an attempt to elevate you and make you look better than you are. You strip down to the very barest, simplest, white linen garments because only in that sense of humility do we have a chance at being made one with God. Some have said that this one, the high priest, was in that moment and on that day the stand-in, the the representative for all humankind. Now are we starting to sound a little more like Easter? Here is one who would stand in the place of all of us and strip away pretension in order to be made one with God. So then he's given instructions. So we pick up the instructions um, in around about verse 5 or so. Listen to these words. From the Israelite community, these are the instructions to the high priest, he is to take two male goats. Oh, this is where it gets really good. He's to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering and and make atonement for himself and his household so that he's clear, free and clear. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring uh, the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, what's going on here? 
day of atonement. No one is allowed inside the space where we will be made at one with God except the high priest. But at the entrance of the tent of meeting, everyone in the nation can see what's happening in the doorway. And at the doorway, two goats are brought to the high priest. One of them is sacrificed as a sin offering and burnt offering. But the other one is kept alive. And these are the instructions to the high priest for the one kept alive. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat. And confess over it all the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites. All of their sins. And and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness, into the care or in the care of someone appointed to the task. The goat will carry on itself all the sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. So on the day of atonement, here is this living goat, and the priest literally puts his hands upon his head, and in the sight of everyone watching, This one representative voices all of the ways that the people themselves have blown it. Here we are at the entrance to the tent of meeting. In other words, at the entryway into our identity as followers of this God who rescued us and set us free and who has given us a way of life that keeps us free and keeps us living like we belong to him in this world. But on this moment, on this day, we confess every way that we have absolutely screwed it up. And we confess to you, God, that we have bowed down to lesser gods. And we confess to you, God, that there have been moments when we have been liberated by you, but have done nothing to enact uh, acts of mercy and liberation for a hurting world. And we confess that to you. We confess to you those moments when we have uh, performed evil in thought or deed or word. We confess them to you. We confess and we own the reality that we have been neglectful of the vulnerable among us. And we place all of those awarenesses upon this animal in order to take away our sin. Now, then the text says, a man is chosen to take this animal into the wilderness. Can I just tell you that if this goat has been filled up to the brim with the sin of all humankind... I would not want to be the dude who is responsible for walking the goat out of town. I mean, that is one messed up goat at that point. And and so it's important that the right guy is set up for the job. So you know what they did in time? They started to get non-Jews. They started to get Gentiles to walk the scapegoat out of town. Isn't that great? So they walk him out of town. And some traditions have said he sets him free in the wilderness. Other traditions have said he takes him to a cliff and shoves him off the cliff. Either way, he takes them out of town so that it doesn't return. Because the worst thing that could happen, this animal that has now absorbed the sin of all humankind, you wake up the next morning and you're feeling pretty good, we're all clean, the trash has been taken out, and you look out your window and he's eating the begonias on your deck in the back porch. That's the worst thing that could happen. So this guy has to take him far enough away where he doesn't come back. And then there's a tradition that says that on the Day of Atonement, the person who takes the scapegoat with all of our sin on his head 
takes them with a red cord. And they tie this red cord around uh, the head of the scapegoat, puts it over the head, and, and leads the goat into the wilderness with the red cord reminding all who see the goat leaving town of our own blood and guilt, our own penitence, our own sorrow, this red cord guiding a goat out of our consciousness. Well, there it is. And he's leading the goat out. But when, when he comes back and there's no goat in the red cord, the tradition is that the high priest would take the red cord and would hang it somewhere in the middle of the, the, the community. Would take the cord and somehow drape it over a doorpost or on the entranceway to the tent of meeting so that everyone will see that the cord which took the goat of our sin away still remains but now empty because they have been made free. And the tradition was sometime within that year, oh, this is good, the red cord miraculously turns white. Sometime in the next several weeks before Yom Kippur, the next year, the red cord hanging in front of the consciousness of all turns white. Now, you will not find that anywhere in your Bible. If you go looking for it, that story's not there. But in the Mishnah and the Talmud, the, the stories that are told, extra biblical stories by the tradition of thousands of generations of, of Jews, this happened every year. The red cord would come back, they'd hang it up, and in time, the white would replace it. And while you won't see that in your Bible, here's what you will see if you turn the page to Isaiah chapter 1, where God says, Though your sins be like scarlet, I shall wash them, what? White as snow. So there is in this day of atonement a moment in which all the community can be set free and then they live with the reminder that you don't have to go back to enslavement. You've been made clean. Now the word that's used for the scapegoat I think is fascinating. The word for scapegoat is azazel. It's a Hebrew word. The azazel literally means to take away or to remove entirely. The very name of the scapegoat was take it away. The very name of this goat that would take away the sins of the people was Azazel. Take it away. Now, I just want you to stop for a moment and consider, can you believe the audacity of a people who would actually believe? I mean, in their hearts, that when they fail, they can actually be restored. Can you believe the audacity of a people who would believe in a God who would somehow make things right when we are the ones who break it? Well, I'll tell you somebody who would believe it. The writer of the Gospel of John. Because in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. Oh, and Pilate says, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. They say, oh, no, 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 he's full of guilt. Uh, he's broken the laws. He's got sin all over. He has blasphemed. He has, he has broken our laws and deserves to be crucified. And Pilate said, I don't see anything wrong with him, but just go and flog him. And took him and flogged him, beat him mercilessly. And then the, the soldiers took a, a crown 
of thorns. He made a, th- made a crown out of a, a branch of thorns and stuck it on his head and dug it down into the skin around his brow. Now let me ask you a question. If you take a crown of thorns and you, you press it down upon somebody's skin and it pierces the skin, there becomes this kind of ring around it. And what color would that ring be? A ring around the head of the one who was full of guilt, the crowds would say. So then he brings them back to Pilate and Pilate says, well, look, he's been beaten, punished. What do you expect me to do? And then the crowds cried out. What do you think they cried out? Just a pop quiz. What what did they shout out? No. You fail. But that was a setup. You know what they did? They did cry out, crucify them. But do you know what they cried out first? Take him away. Take him away. And then they said, crucify him. Bish gaga. This one who represents all of our intentional and unintentional sins. This one who is guilty. Take him away. Azazel. For in him is the fullness of all of our brokenness. He is our scapegoat. And then Pilate has him taken outside the camp. Outside the city. And guess who leads him outside the city? A Gentile. And is crucified. He is crucified for our transgressions. Beloved, I just want you to know that this one that we come to celebrate today is the one who chose to become the scapegoat of the cosmos, bearing upon his brow and in his very body the penalty of all of our cumulative sin and brokenness. So when the writer of Hebrews, another New Testament writing, tries to put some words around resurrection and tries to put some words around this mystery that happened in Christ the writer of Hebrews reaches back to Leviticus and pulls forward this image and essentially says, look, this thing used to work. The system of Yom Kippur, where, where a priest would go on and, and make at one with God on our behalf. But the problem, according to Hebrews, was that every year he would have to do it again. Because no blood of bulls and goats can take away sin forever. See, even after the garbage man came and took my trash away, guess what happened? I wheeled those garbage cans back up to the top of my driveway, had to bleach them out a little bit. But guess what happened by next Monday? They were filled with garbage again. You and I cannot on our own, nor through any kind of striving ritual, somehow remain clean on our own. And Hebrews says it this way. Every priest goes to the work at the altar each day. They offer the same old sacrifices year in and year out and never makes a dent in the sin problem. As a priest, Christ made a single sacrifice for sins and that was it. Then he sat down right beside God and waited for his enemies to cave in. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. By the single offering, that single offering, he did everything that needed to be done for everyone to take part in this purifying process. The Holy Spirit confirms this. This new plan I'm making with Israel isn't going to be written on paper. isn't going to be chiseled in stone. This time I'm writing out the plan 
in them, carving it into the lining of their hearts. He concludes, I'll forever wipe the slate clean of their sins. And in chapter 9 of that same, that same book, everyone has to die once, right? And then face the, the consequences. Christ's death was also a one-time event, but it was a sacrifice that took care of sins forever. And so when he next appears, the outcome for those eager to greet him is precisely salvation. Let somebody say amen. The beloved, beloved, listen, the good news is this. All of our striving is futile because God has already demonstrated in Christ it's over. You cannot do anything that will make God love you more than God already does. And demonstrated in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we see that that whole system of trying to earn our way back to at-one-ment with God is futile. Because God is saying, because of my son, you have been made at one with me. Yeah, something else about this red cord. It was said that every year the thing turned from red to white sometime in the course of that year. But in the Mishnah, which is a Jewish writing, kind of a commentary of the scriptures, in the Mishnah, we have a report. Keep in mind, this is a non-Christian document. It's not written by Christians. It doesn't have a Christian agenda. It's a Jewish document. In the Mishnah, in the first century, we have this report. That every year, the red turned to white, except 40 years before the destruction of the temple, it stopped turning white. And never turned white again. Well, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. Forty years before A.D. 70 was around about A.D. 30. And around about A.D. 30, something happened around the tomb, brothers and sisters. Which indicates that in that moment, in that cosmic consummation of the ages, something happened that rendered this whole system unnecessary. For God had made a way for you to be made at one with him. And I don't know about you, but that is the best news I've ever heard. Yeah. Somebody celebrate. Mm. Now listen, today we're about to pray and sing. And as we pray and sing, it may be that that is the first time you've heard that kind of news in your life. It may be that you've heard that kind of news again and again all throughout your life, but because of the lining up of stars and the way things are in your life right now, you have heard it in a new way. And maybe you want to do something about that. My beloved friends, the only thing you can do about that is receive it. You can't impress God enough. You can't put on airs with God enough. You cannot achieve a thing or prove a thing about you that will make God welcome you into at one month any more than God is willing already to welcome you. The only thing that we can do is receive it. So during the singing of this last hymn, this last song, both in this room and in our Family Life Center. I'm going to ask you that if you feel compelled within the heart to move on this, 
to make some kind of decision, a spiritual decision of some significance for you. We're going to be here at the front. The pastors are to welcome you, to pray with you, to somehow attempt to understand what it is that God may be up to in you. And we're going to delight in that and celebrate it. That means that during the singing of this hymn, I want you without hesitation, without delay, to walk right out of your pew and walk right down to the front of the room that you're in. And we will pray together and see what happens in the at one that God wants for you. Whatever the decision may be, you come as we sing in a moment. For now, let's bow together in prayer. Most loving and glorious God, the, the, the risen one, we confess to you that, that we are... Uh, we, we marvel at this mystery that we can't really comprehend that, you, that your, your love is so relentless that you would choose to seek us out and, and repair the places where we ourselves have broken life. So right now, we, we simply pray for those who are hearing this and, and whose hearts are beating a little faster because there, there may be some quickening, some quickening of hope within them. We pray that your spirit would so guide them to move on this, to, to walk forward and to respond to your grace that their lives are never the same again. Lord, we welcome you and, and we pray that you would move among us even as we worship in song. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.